Hi, this is Robert Schuler with Melissa's Produce, and you're listening in on Cord Vines and Dye. You can lock me up, throw away the key. It don't make no never mind to me. You can chain me down like a junkyard hound Bury me six feet in the ground But you can't keep a good man down, no You can't keep a good man down Okay? Okay, okay. I don't want to do a thing that's going to make anybody uncomfortable. Let me ask you a very, very private question. Does your boyfriend lose his temper? Huh? Se descontrola? We know he hits you. Now, if we got him in here and we told him you were talking to us about him, you think he just might mess up that pretty little face of yours? Jack, come on, let's go. You don't want to be late for your championship game. Whole team's counting on that arm of yours. See this? Pain night. This is Peter on a ride, and you're listening to Chords, Vines, and Dines. So this is Chords, Vines, and Dines. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And uh, I'm certainly excited about today's show. We have Mr. Peter Onorati on with us. Oh, he's so much fun. And if you don't know the name Peter Onorati, I will virtually guarantee you you've seen him. And uh, he's been on over 70 films and numerous TV shows. He was on uh, Goodfellas with Robert De Niro. He's uh, been on Murder One, uh, Civil Wars, This Is Us, SWAT. Uh, we saw him the other night on the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, great guy. Um, to backtrack a little bit, I used to live on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands from 1980 to 1984. And for a period, I stayed at a place called La Casa Loco. It is a guest house and bar, or was. I doubt that it exists anymore. The proprietor was named Charlie Ross, and Charlie grew up in Boonton, New Jersey, and one of his <laughs> buddies was Peter Onorati. So Peter came down to the island, met him, and we've stayed in touch on and off for all of these years. Doesn't local mean kind of crazy? It means the crazy house, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, How Pe- fun. Peter's going to tell a story or two about La Casa Loco because yeah. he, he stayed there. <laughs> he knows all about it. Well, it sounded like in the interview, it sounded like you guys got a little crazy. We got a little crazy. Um, we also have Sean Roberts. Inside the Spotlight. Yes. And Paul Preston, the movie guy. Yeah. We're getting all ourselves back on track here. We're sure trying. And Cords, Vines, and Dines is brought to you. Our official produce sponsor is Melissa's Produce. We Yay. need to get Robert Schuler back in so we can talk about winter before it becomes spring. I was just thinking about going online and checking out all the recipes on there and deciding which one I'm going to make this week. Well, there you go. Any ideas? Um, well, let's see. Winter... Um, Squash is more fall, isn't it? I'm having a... I keep thinking spring now because the weather is, is right. getting... Well, it's really nice right now. We've had a, quite a bit of rain. We've got more rain coming, but I did order my uh, garden plants Yes, yesterday. you did. It's going to be hot and spicy. Hot and spicy. <laughs> it sounds going to be like salsa. i got tomatoes and hot peppers coming. So shall we get things kicked off and underway? Shall we go on with Sean Roberts? Let's do it. Let's go inside the spotlight. 
Welcome to Inside the Spotlight. I'm Sean Roberts, reporting on reviews on gear and other items for musicians, as well as music news, music trends, and advice to those wanting to get inside the music industry. Well, on today's segment, basically, I had a couple of people asking me, Sean, how did you come up with the idea of your album covers? Well, there's many things to consider, basically, when you are making your own album cover. The first thing is basically know your audience. First, as a musician, musical artist itself, but you must be clear about who precisely your audience is and who you are and how you want to transcend that through the album cover itself. You also want to get inspiration. Look at other album covers. What have other people done? Can you do something similar? Not necessarily copy, though, but maybe emulate something that they've done in the past also. Now, another thing is you want to choose a color scheme. How colorful do you want it to be? Do you want it to be bright? Do you want it to be dull? Do you want it to have flare? Is it all one color? Is it black and white? Those are going to be all important to you. Also, use fonts carefully. You want to make sure that everything that you put on your CD or cover not only just matches, but it's legible. People can read it with ease and no problem. So you don't want to pick any fonts that are too fancy, but simplistic enough that get your point across as well. Next, pick the right imagery and style. That is so important. You want to make sure that you're, again, conveying the things that you want to convey about the songs that are on the album and represent the album as a whole properly. Also include the vital details. Uh, How are things going to be put together? Is it going to be layered? Uh, What's the overall look that we want? Uh, And then also consider different sizes too. Will they match the different sizes? Will it go well, let's say, on a big giant uh, LP cover? And will it match, let's say, a CD cover? Or maybe even a cassette if we're going that route because cassettes are coming back. So to give you a little bit of example of here, um, I was in a group called Bob Knows Best, which is a comedy band. The first album we did, we wanted to think outside the box. We took a couple of pictures at, at, near a venue that we were playing, performing at, but next door to the venue was actually a beauty school. We had the silly idea of sitting in the hair dryers, the old-fashioned style that come up and over the, behind your head and on, on top. And we took a picture of ourselves, basically, all of us sitting there. Well, the idea of the album kind of title came to him very quickly to us, which was called Bob Knows Best Gets Their Hair Did. We decided then to use a Beatlesque type of font on it, and it worked beautifully. We did it in black and white and make it look like as it was somewhat of a Beatlesque album. The next album we did was called Ancient Chinese Food Fight. Well, how is that going to convey overall with the album? Well, we decided then to basically, again, think outside the box. And the first idea was maybe a Chinese takeout type of a thing. But instead, we asked a friend of ours who was an artist to draw each of the band members as a street fighter anime type of caricature for us. So he went ahead and did that. And basically, we then layered us as a group as all we were all in different fighting positions and so forth uh, to take on anybody in the musical world. And of course, it worked out beautifully. The last album we did was called um, Let's Get Ready to Stumble. 
was our live album. And that one, we just simply had pictures of us in uh, various live situations. Um, and it was really easy to do, crop them off, put them together. And since there were six of us, three on top, three on the bottom, and it worked out really, really well. Now, keep in mind, Bob knows best was a comedic band. So we want to make the albums stand out and be a little funny at the same token, but it's a, be a little bit serious as well. That was one advantage that we had overall, and each album cover looked really, really good. We were very proud of all of those. So again, when you're trying to choose and pick your album for your first album, second album, third, think outside the box, think differently. Think that this is going to represent the collective songs as a whole overall. And is it going to be interesting enough for people who want to pick up and listen to? Is it going to excite them the same way it might excite you overall when you see your favorite artist album covers and pick them up and want to play them? So there you go. There's some advice there on trying to choose your album covers. Well, there are two type of showcase submissions I want to let you guys know about for songwriters. The first one is going to be for Americana Fest. 2024 showcase submissions are now open. Now, if you're interested in playing it for some of the most influential people in Americana community, this is the place to do it. Now, the showcase submissions for Americana Fest 2024 are open now through March 8th. Uh, to, uh, up until about 10 p.m. Central Time. Now, the best place to go is AmericanaMusic.org backslash AmericanaFest. Go ahead and submit and see what works out for you. The next is where BMI presents the 28th Annual Key West Songwriters Festival. Now, this is a five-day event set to take place from May 1st through May 5th. Uh, and, of course, again, it's in the 28th year. Now, that's sponsored by the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Associations, uh, basically. And they're going to welcome more than 150 BMI creators uh, on the island. Transforms into a music city with a multi-day offerings of free and ticketed shows. Now, music enthusiasts will immerse themselves in an open-air performance, showcasing the craftsmanship and the camaraderie behind their favorite songs while discovering new music. Now, additional songwriters will continue to be revealed and schedules will be made available. And in order to attend this or even to try and submit whatever you want to do, all you have to do is go to keywestsongwritersfestival.com for more information on this. But do keep in mind, this is strictly for, especially if you want to perform, for BMI songwriters. So you have to be a member of BMI to do this. But if you just wanted to attend, go right ahead. Anybody can go. Well, now all we're going to say is what is cooler than a Beatles biopic? How about four of them? That's right. Academy Award-winning director Sam Mendes is set to direct four movies about the Fab Four, with each film focusing on the band members' point of view. Uh, these films also got the blessings of not only Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, but also the estates of John Lennon and George Harrison. So good luck to you, Mr. Mendes. You're going to need all the love you can get on making these films. Speaking of Paul McCartney, Paul has recently been reunited with his stolen Hofner bass after 50 years. Yep, 
The original Paulfner bass he bought in the early 1960s that was stolen in the 1970s. Uh, the former Beatle confirmed following recently following the launch of last year's Lost Beatle project that the guitar that was stolen in 1972 has been returned to him. The guitar has been authenticated by Hoffner and Paul McCartney himself, and Paul is incredibly grateful to all those involved. So, apparently, Paul bought the guitar, which was a left-hand violin bass, in Hamburg, Germany, 1961. It was his primary instrument throughout the early years of the Beatles' runs at Hamburg's Top Ten Club and Liverpool's Cavern Club, and also on the early recordings, until it became his backup bass when he got a new Hoffner in 1963. But then, of course, in 1972, the bass got stolen. Of course, went missing for many, many years, up until recently. And now the bass is back in Paul's hands. Welcome home, old chum. Now, Beyonce has become the first black woman to top Billboard's hot country charts. This is so cool, because for more than two decades into her career, Beyonce is still making history. On February 20th, Billboard released its updated music charts on and revealed that Beyonce's new song, Texas Hold'em, landed at number one on the Hot Country Song Charts. So the track, which is uh, which she released on February 11th, along with her another country song called 16 Carriages, is the music superstar's first number one on the country chart. She also made history as the first black woman to secure the top spot on Billboard. And not only that, but she's the only woman to score a number one song on both Hot Country Songs and the Hot R&B Hip Hop Song Charts. Congratulations, Beyonce. Wish you success on that. Well, once again, guys, I am Sean Roberts for Inside the Spotlight here on Chords, Vines, and Dines. But don't forget, you can also hear me on my very own podcast, Your Weekly Dose, which airs every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. You can hear it live at yourweeklydose.com. So if you're not doing anything on your Saturday mornings, why don't you come on over to our website and listen to Lyric, B.W., Amber and myself. Back to you, Tommy Cat. Sean's such a good guy. And his his show, your weekly dose. That's right. On it's Saturdays. back now, isn't it? Yeah. Wonderful. We're gonna have to have Sean back on. We got to get on his show. We had so much fun going we, uh, to his place and being crazy, being loco. <laughs> we had a we had a blast there. Yeah, we'll have to talk to him about doing that again. Well, so we move on to our. Uh, do you want to play the game of food, or you? Yeah, wanna, let's okay. do game of food. All right. So, pick two cards, any two cards. All right. What is my first category? I don't know. You're going to get the right answer anyway. <laughs> Not always. People and pop, pop culture. Okay. Beauty and the Beast. Gaston attributes his strength to eating four dozen of these every morning as a lad. A, strips of bacon. B, eggs. C, croissants. Or D, oranges. Um, eggs. Yeah, I mean that was obvious. I mean See, you don't you don't eat a dozen four strip. dozen strips of bacon. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> okay, our uh, category is regional dishes. Oh God. <laughs> Jiggly Watergate salad owes its pale green hue to what ingredient? Is it a matcha, b spinach, c pistachio pudding, or d kiwi? What was the... Jiggly Watergate salad. What makes it green? Um, matcha. Pistachio pudding. That was my first... I should have gone with my first Go choice. with your gut. Yeah. Oh, well. Ingredients. 
The term Philadelphia style is used to describe ice cream that is made in Philadelphia, made with bits of fruit, mixed with various add-ins on a cold marble slab, or made without eggs. On a slab. (laughs) Made without eggs. I almost said that. Cooking tools and techniques. Paneer and queso fresco are both made by adding this ingredient to heated milk. Is it A, rennet, B, yogurt, C, fungal spores, or D, acid? Paneer and queso fresco. (laughs) LSD. So is that your answer? A. You should have stuck with it. Was acid? It's acid, yep. Oh, geez. All righty. Well, that was not fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shall we move on to our visit with Peter Onorati? Yeah, but first, you know what we're going to do next Sunday? Do you know? We are going somewhere next Sunday. Is that uh, Lucas Nelson? Yes, we're going to go see Lucas Nelson next And the promise of the real. Yes. So excited. Yes, we're very excited about that. And we're going to talk all about that probably on our next episode. He is very much his dad, Willie Nelson's son. And I don't know if we can bring our cameras in. we got to find out. Yeah, but it said no camera bags, but I haven't seen no cameras. So we'll find out. Yeah, and maybe we can get our press passes, take photos. Maybe, maybe. I'll have to work on that. Yeah. Okay, so let's go on with Peter Onorati. I really enjoy, and I'm following him on Facebook a lot. Yeah, he's fun to be. He posts frequently, and his posts are always entertaining. Yeah, and he's had his grandson's birthdays, right. and, and they're adorable, absolutely adorable. So, yeah, I'm following him a lot on, on Facebook. He's on there quite a bit. You're stalking him. I'm stalking him. <laughs> no. Well, as a fan, um, and, and kind of as a friend now that we got to yeah. know him, yeah, nice. I really enjoying. I, I really enjoyed uh, our interview with him. He's very down-to-earth. Yes, and so much fun, and I'm really going back now and looking at him in movies and sitcoms yeah. and stuff, and and appreciating him even more than I actually got to speak with him. So his uh, when he talks about being in Goodfellas and meeting uh, Martin Scorsese oh, and Robert gosh. De Niro, it's a great. Edit. Let's let's just go into it. Okay, let's do that with Peter Onorati. Thank you so much, Peter. I, we haven't seen each other in over forty years. Yeah. We have a mutual friend uh, by the name of Charlie Ross, and uh, yeah, you and Charlie knew each other as kids, didn't you, in New Jersey? Yeah, yeah, we we went to grade school together, and um, then his family left town. I think after our first year of high school, and they moved to Australia, where his mom was from, and then uh, they ended up in St. Croix, and that's where you know um, I started to visit him, and. Uh, and that's where we kept things sort of going. All right, I'll bring up a blast from the past for you, Peter. La Casa Loco. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was living. You know. In... Yeah, go ahead. I was I was up in the corner room one night, and I was just doing some writing. You know, in those days, I was still in the business world. I I still had my MBA, and I was working at McCall's magazines. But I decided to do some writing, so I'm in the corner room at Casa Loco, and Charlie knocks on the door and he goes, Hey, can I uh, come in and stand by the window for a minute? I said, well, sure. And he comes in with a 357 Magnum and he's looking down at the gate. Cause my room was up above the gate. And I went, 
I, I, I thought you were coming in for a drink. <laughs> you know? But um, that's that's when St. Croix was still sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Wild West. That was in the 80s. I, I remember one night there was a, a business that caught on fire down the street. And Charlie ran into the back and, and put on uh, fire, you're going to burn. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, at, I was at dinner at his brother Peter's restaurant one night. The um, garden, with right? With my girlfriend. Charlie and I were sitting having dinner. He and I, I think it was Jackie at the time. Yeah. And uh, and um, Peter came out, whispered something to Charlie. And Charlie said, I'll be right back. And uh, he went back into the kitchen. The two of them came out of the kitchen with paper bags and their hands in the paper bags and left. I found out <laughs> later there was a place on the edge of town called the Top Hat. Oh, sure. And You remember Top Hat? Yeah. And uh, it, it had been... Uh, invaded robbed whatever by uh some of those guys who'd like to come out of the jungles you know and and raid and uh so you know all the business owners rallied together and they and they went to uh, the aid of the owner of the top hat you know yeah that was uh, that was if i remember danish food yeah yeah anyway just so uh, to clue our listeners in who might not be familiar with your name uh, I, I'll bet you they have seen your face either on the big screen or on TV. Uh, you've been acting for how many decades now, Peter? I would say close, close to four, uh, three wow. and a half. Amazing. You know? Yeah. Cat and I just started watching Murder in the First, and I went, "Oh, there's Peter." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my last job for uh, for my boss uh, and my mentor, Stephen Bosco. He. Oh. Uh, he called me and, you know, actually I, I had gotten a, a message from my agents and, you know, Stephen and I were still in touch. We'd have lunch like once or twice a year. And um, it's really interesting because, you know, I had started, I, he gave me my first big job here. And so this is years later. And, uh, you know, my agents called and said, they want you to, you to audition for this job in, on Murder in the First. And I said, oh, okay. And so I emailed Stephen and I said, hey, um, my reps are sending me up for this role. Uh, what do you think? And he goes, I wrote that role for you. <laughs> he said, but he said, I don't have enough juice anymore to just give it to you. And I'm thinking, wow, the business has changed when Stephen Bochco can't just say, I want him, I want her, I want him, you know? That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. I, I want to uh, first. I want Cat to chime in on murder in the first. We, she turned me onto it, and wow, what a ride! Oh, that was so good. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I was. Um, I I binge watched it. I think all the way. That first season was just absolutely incredible, and just um, blew me away. And I, you know, that Eric was one of those one of those guys you just love to hate Eric all Blunt. the way through. Yeah. And I yeah. forget the actor's name on on that, but boy, was he! I mean, the whole the whole crew there that you had there was just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, no, it was uh, it was great crew, and and uh, um, we were you know we filmed in, in in San Francisco a lot, and it was great for me because my son was at Santa Cruz, so uh, I got to visit with him, and you know it was it was just great all the way around, you know. Going back through your uh, filmography, it looks like your first uh, movie was called, uh, is it Firehouse? Yes. It, here's a very interesting story about Firehouse. I was still, I, I was still working, you know, um, 
my last job in the business world, I was the director of marketing and research for three of McCall's magazines, uh, Working Mother, Beauty Diet and Health Guide, and uh, Cooking School. And uh, But I was doing improvisational comedy as a hobby with a, a bunch of people in the city and having fun. So I threw my name in a hat backstage, and I got a role in this. It was really a tits and ass movie called Firehouse, right? <laughs> okay. So I, I go and I play this horrible character. Ron Sleek was the name <laughs> of the character. What a name. <clears throat> and um, the strange thing was, um, God, it could it be 20 years later, maybe? Um, when I was fully in the business, I was doing a movie in in Canada, and I got a call from my manager saying, hey, someone wants to talk to you. They're doing a biography of um, uh, Julia Roberts. And I said, well, what do you want to talk to me for? You know, <laughs> And they said, well, um, the first time she ever appeared on camera was on your arm in a movie called Firehouse. Oh, and my went, God. They, and so the guy calls me and he said, do you have any recollection? I said, well, yeah, I have a recollection of that scene. He goes, do you think you said anything to her? I said, yeah, I'm sure I said, um, you know, you would really be great at ad sales. <laughs> <laughs> because that's you know that was the division i was in i was the head of marketing and research and so um you know i worked with all the ad sales women two were my superiors and 13 were my subordinates i got more penis birthday cakes than you could imagine <laughs> <laughs> peter any any cringeworthy memories that pop up uh i i not really. Oh, there, there is one. Something happened to me before I got in. Before I got into the business, that was probably one of the greatest gifts of my career. But I didn't know it at the time. A very famous actor and playwright um, by the name of George Firth. Um, you guys might know him. He wrote Company. He wrote a, a bunch of other uh, Broadway plays. And was friends with Sondheim and everything. But he was, if you saw Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he was the guy who always, who guarded the safe on the train. Sure. He was in, you know, he was in tons of stuff. He was in The Odd Couple, the TV show. He, he just a great character actor. But made, you know, made a, a great living as a playwright, too, you know. So he had written a play, and he was going to do a reading of it at the Actor Studio in New York. Now, again, I wasn't yet, an actor i was an improvisational comedian that was having fun on the side and he asked me to do a reading um at the studio and i'm like what did the actor's studio that like lee strasberg and paul newman was there you know so we did a pre-read right before the main session and my i i was the second male lead in this thing and my first line was on page 23 and he stopped the reading and he said uh, Peter, uh, you're not a good enough actor to do this. I'm going to change you with someone else. <laughs> oh, Whoa. Gosh. That's brutal. So my, for me, it was like someone had bored a hole in my foot and everything inside of me had run out, you know? Mm -hmm. And... At, and at the break, his, his, his director came up and said, oh, he didn't mean that. I said, listen, I'm from New Jersey. I don't give a shit what he meant <laughs> i give a shit about what he said in front of everybody you know and um 
So I stayed on to do the reading. I did like five different little characters. Flash forward 20 years. Uh, I'm already a Botsko boy. Um, and I'm in Whole Foods. And George Firth comes up behind me at the checkout line. He goes, well, I guess you've solved your reading problem. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, I guess I have. You know? <laughs> but here's the funny thing. He had another play that he wanted me to do at um, the Matrix Theater out here, which was, uh, which is a pretty big, uh, you know, it's a big out of the way theater. It's where Milton Gonzalez taught and everything. So it's got a pretty good reputation. It was a play he had written for his best friends, Annette Benning and Warren Beatty, right? Wow. So, so I, so he said, just take a look at it and see if you want, you know, um, so I took a look at it and uh, I decided to do, there was like six scenes and I decided to do a scene. Right. Um, and he was like so happy and so wonderful to me and so nice to me, but never, ever, ever apologized for that <laughs> moment. And it was hilarious because uh, one of my best friends who introduced me to George initially, you know, has, we've, we stayed best friends the whole time. And he goes, I can't believe that son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> went that far and, and, and never apologized for you for that moment because you know he remembered it. So that that was that was probably the most it, probably. But, but like I said, it it was the greatest gift in the world for me because I realized something after that. I realized you can't die from embarrassment. There you go. You know. <laughs> And and it really insulated me from being hurt by anybody else, you know, um, from then on. And consequently, a couple of years later, when I became an actor, both my wife and I became members of the actor's studio. We, we auditioned and got in, you know. So, uh, you know, it kind of it kind of really kind of threw it in his face a little bit. <laughs> uh, and that's it. Except there was there was one moment with Quentin Tarantino too, which. I don't know if I, it, it's just, it was an, an audition and uh, this was before Quentin had started to act in his own movies. And uh, he was up in my face reading me and, and there's no way he could have seen what I was doing. And I really wanted to, and I was on this, I was on my series with Mario Hemingway at the time. So, you know, I had a job. I was, I, you know, I was pretty confident, you know, and I was just about to grab him by the neck and say, <laughs> This is my audition. You want to act, you act. You get the hell over there and watch what I'm doing, you know? <laughs> and to this day, if I had, I feel like if I had done that, I would have gotten the job. <laughs> Probably. Because <laughs> he's so damn sick, you know? <laughs> no kidding. I think Kat yeah. wanted to ask you something. Well, you were talking about, you know, with your wife, I say you, you've been married, but 35 years, something like that. Yeah. And yeah, that's really almost years. unheard of in, in that industry. Well, and, I always say that's 100 in Hollywood. You know? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, how did you yeah. two meet? Did you meet at the... Uh... Well, that's the thing. We met in the improv group. Jeanette was a starving actress in Manhattan. She had four jobs. She used to get up 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, this is when I was still at, at McCall's. And... Uh, but doing this little, you know, working with this little improv group called, uh, we called ourselves Port Authority Theater Ensemble or Pale. Pate. Oh, Pate. You know? That's right. Pate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so um, um, 
Jeanette was an accomplished improvisational actress. She started out here in California. She grew up in Santa Barbara and was doing it in L.A. And then moved to New York with a play. And then uh, the play went down. And uh, like I said, she was working four jobs like most actors and actresses in New York uh, who, you know, didn't have a full on career. And then she came into our uh, improv group when her particular group had disbanded. And um, right around that time, uh, my old girlfriend and I had uh, broken up. Who This woman was also the art director of one of the magazines at McCall's that I worked for. But she was from my hometown, so we had known each other as kids. So Janet uh, and I kind of started dating. And um, then a very interesting thing happened. I had some of my research published in Advertising Age, you know, the uh, – um, the uh, uh, trade uh, press. And uh, I started getting calls from all Dr. and Gamble and all these big package good firms wanting to steal me away. And, you know, I went into my boss and I said, listen, you know, these people are trying to steal me away, but I really want to stay here. And uh, now, mind you, I, this woman and I were friends. We had a share in a house in the Hamptons and all that yuppies, 80 shit that everybody <laughs> did, you know? And um, she said to me, um, well, the publisher doesn't know what you do. And I went, okay, wait right there. <laughs> and I went in my office and I got a loose leaf notebook I had kept from four and a half years I was there. And I said, now, before I come open this notebook, I want you to remember that I came to you from Ford Motor Company. If you learn anything at Ford, you learn how to cover your ass. Okay. <laughs> so I opened up the book and on all these pages were dates that I had pitched an idea. And then when it affected the change in the ad placement in a magazine or created new editorial departments, whatever it did, I had a clear sheet from the magazine. And I said, so who does the publisher think did this? You know, and obviously she'd taken credit and that made her even more mad. <laughs> so, uh, so she took away all my creative writing uh, from my job and, and uh, was just about crunching numbers on the computer and, and at that point, Jeanette said, well, I think you could be an actor. So I walked in. And I said, look, you can't fire me. My work is too good. So if you make it so I can collect unemployment, which I've never done, I'll leave. And I left Monday. I left it with a 200-page research document that only needs to be updated for all the sales force. I enrolled in a crash course in commercials. And within a week, I was on hold for a national commercial. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. We don't, well, we you don't, have to remember, this was like 1986, and here's you want to talk about timing. The stereotypes for commercials for men at the time, at that time, were Bruce Willis, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and Tony Danza. Uh, <laughs> I got a piece of each. <laughs> you know? Go ahead. I was just going to say, within a, you know, within a year, I was making. I was making more money as a commercial actor than I was making as a Park Avenue ad executive. Oh, wow. That is so cool. Yeah. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but just quickly, I wanted to touch uh, Goodfellas was one of the first uh, movies you uh, were booked on. And what was it like working yeah. with Scorsese and De Niro and, and that well, crew? It was, it was amazing. It, it really was amazing. And, and the funny thing was... It, if you have time, I do have a quick story about oh, we how have time. I got. I don't want I to take it. your time. We got plenty of time. <laughs> so um, at that time, I was my first TV show was the last season of Kate Nally uh, in New York. Yeah. We filmed at the Ed Sullivan Theater and Jeanette was pregnant with our first son. And 
we had uh, we had to move out here, but I would fly back to finish the last four episodes of Kate and Allie. So Jeanette was already out here because we didn't want to have the baby in New York City. And um, uh, Thursday night, the last episode of Kate and Allie filmed at the Ed Sullivan Theater in front of an audience. Friday, I have a 2.30 flight out of JFK because my son is due to be born that next Monday. And I get a call from my agents saying, you have a call back from Martin Scorsese and Rockefeller Center at 12.30. And I, I, I said, but my, my, my son. So I, I called to that and I said, I might be late. <laughs> <laughs> so now here's the funny part. At that time, for the small parts like I got, Scorsese was hiring ex-mob guys or cops who had chased mob guys, you know, and we all had the same scene to read. And if he liked what you did, he would just pick a role for you. So I walked into the outer office of casting and there are all these guys with silver sweatsuits and patent leather sneakers and smoking cigars, right? And they look at me. One guy goes, what are you reading for? And I go, I go, well, I got the size for Sunny Bamboo. He goes, he goes, you know him? I go, no, I don't know him. He goes, I know him. You don't look nothing like him. I say, well, that's what they gave me. He goes, okay, kid, God bless you. Right? <laughs> so now I'm not nervous enough. I'm going in to read for Scorsese. Now, Again, this was only like three years into my career. Right. So my, my business acumen was still around. And, and the thing that I used to have to do in, in, in the business world was to make the meeting mine. So I, that was the only thing that made me comfortable. So I'm going in the read for Scorsese, and I decide to make the meeting mine by making up a story. My grandfather's name is Donato Scorsese. It's the exact same spelling as Scorsese without the S, right? Right. So when I get in there, I meet Marty. I'll call him Marty. And I said to him, hey, before we start, I got to ask you if we're related. Because I said to my grandfather, I was going in to read for the great director, Martin Scorsese. And my grandfather said, wow. I think so. We have a cousin at one time, which taken the S out of the name, right? <laughs> so Scorsese goes, really, really, really? Because we can't find our relatives. And I go, oh shit, I'm really screwed now. <laughs> 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 so I go, well, uh, where are you from? He goes, Sicily. I go, no freaking way. We're not Sicilians. He goes, what are you? I go, ah, we're Napolitans. He goes, ah, you guys drink too early in the morning. You want to do this? I go, yeah. He goes, okay, let's do it. And we read the scene and I got a part. <laughs> you were Jimmy two times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was, uh, it was amazing. And then, you know, of course you get on the, you get on the set and two o'clock in the morning and De Niro comes into the car and he goes, how are you doing on Bobby De Niro? And I go, yeah, I know. You know? <laughs> and, and he makes, you'll see on my Facebook, sometimes I put up my De Niro face. He, he makes his face back at me. Right. And, um, and there was some embarrassing stuff happening there too, because, you know, um, when you, when you're shooting a, a scene like that, that's violent, um, they take the master shot from the, from the front windshield 
and they're punching me in the head and I have to sell the punch. I have to throw my head back, you know, and make like they're really hitting me, you know? Um, and from that camera angle, you can't tell, you know, it's, it's, it's really good. Well, at the time I, you know, I was studying martial arts and, you know, with a violent action in martial arts, you always release a sound, right? Well, I didn't want a ki, and I was out of place, right? <laughs> so, so, so he starts to punch me, and I'm throwing my head back, and I go immediately. I go back to third grade. I'm going, doosh, 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 <laughs> like, you know, and and they go cut, and the sound man comes over. He goes, uh, "You don't have to make that noise. We can do something." Later. I went, "Oh, I'm so friggin'." I'm so friggin' embarrassed, right? Oh my god! <laughs> it's like it was like it was like the old Batman series, you know, zap, wham. Zap. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking so. of Facebook, I got to thank you for uh, all the years you've uh, wished me happy birthday on Facebook. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great to do that. I, I you know, you know, it's, it, Facebook takes it uh, takes a lot of heat all the time, but I have. I have rekindled and and kindled some great relationships on Facebook that, uh, you know, and mostly it's the people that I haven't seen in a long time and, and, and you know, don't know how to get a hold of me. And, and I love it. I'm, and I, I, for that, it's great, you know. Uh, but it also, it also, one of the things that's great about it is uh, you get a real window into how some of your old friends have changed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When you put any sort of political post up there, it's like, wow. You know? No kidding. Uh, I mean, I'm telling you, I, I look at, there are guys that I went to college with who got way better grades than I do and were taught critical thinking the way I was. And I'm like, what happened to you? <laughs> you <laughs> exactly. What, where's that critical thinking that we, we, we learned to do, you know, that we paid money to learn to yeah. do, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough, you know, uh, but you know, I get through it and I take it as a challenge sometimes. It's great for me in my business because, and I tell my friends this too, both the ones that I'm on the same side of the aisle and the other ones, I say, you know, you're in, all of you are, are part of me and I get to use our life and our experiences together in my work in creating a life on camera or on stage. You guys don't get that, you know, that luxury, but I, there are things that I do that come from things that we experience together, you know? So right. it's, it's, you know, you're all a part of, of what I do. And I feel very lucky to be able to create stories and characters based on my own stories with, with you people, you know? Um, and and so you know and so now it's at the point where I, I want to honor our friendship and, and 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 our time together and our love together. Um, so it's a real exercise for me to try and find ways to be patient and to articulate my point if I think it's going to be received e even at all. If it's not, uh, then I, you know I'm not going to waste my energy on that interaction. Uh, and I know to go away, but it just it is a great challenge to try and find a way into some of these people who have changed so radically, you know? That's a real challenge. It really is. I mean, I shake yeah. my head. We both do constantly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. won't get into politics on here, but I'm yeah. just like want to slap people upside the head going, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know? But... Well, you know what I say? I say to some of my friends, I go, 
I won't name the person, I'll say, but do you have anybody else in your life that is like that person? Do you have any friends like that or any family members in your life like that? And they'll say no. I say no, because if you did, you got rid of them, right? (laughs) They say yeah. Yeah. And I said yeah. And so you want that person in charge of your life? (laughs) You know? When he's the very or or she's the very person that you you got rid of, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So I I try and bring it. I try to make it as personal as I can. But, you know, and and it's, you know, it's futile. I mean, we're in a we're in such a tribal social environment now that, uh, you know, politics has become a team sport. Somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. And that's that's baloney. The people should win and lose, not not the parties, you know? Right. Um, One thing I want to get uh, I was thinking, you know, Tom and I are both big fans of the Big Bang Theory. And oh. I saw that you were on there. And, you know, yeah. we, we were always, you know, we watch that and we keep thinking, gee, they must be having a lot of fun, you know, when, when they're doing that. Did you have a lot of fun with them? Or are they as crazy in real life? I did. I did. I had a lot of fun with Jim. But um, what's your name? Um, uh, Kaylee Coco? Uh, oh, the, the Blanc Bernadette. Yes. Um, she came up to me and she said, I loved cop rock. And I went, are you kidding me? <laughs> I said, my God, Botchko's biggest failure. I said, that's fantastic. You know, it was so wonderful for, to, for, to hear that acknowledgement. And, you know, it made me, it made me very, very, very comfortable. And so did Jim. He made me very comfortable. And I, and I, you know, I said to him, he had some problems there were some things, you know, when you get to a certain point um, in, you know, in your career and, and you're responsible for a show like that, sometimes you have a little problems with a line here or there. So there, in our scene, there was there was maybe just a little problem here and there. And so I went over to him and I said, Jim, is there anything I can do? You know, drop a line or do whatever. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. Everything you're doing is fine. It's just I, I need to solve this over here, you know. So he was, you know, very accessible and 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 very kind you know he seems like he would be i think the whole yeah. the whole cast was just <laughs> incredible and they do get some great actors like you in there all the time and it's just wonderful <laughs> I, i'm so sorry when it ended melissa rouch yeah. was the name of the actress with the glasses okay great yeah yeah well, yeah, she's actually a, a physicist or something too, isn't she? I think she is, and she's uh, on the yeah, remake yeah. of uh, Night Court now. As she plays the judge. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's great. I'm yeah. glad her voice isn't the same on Night Court <laughs> as it was <laughs> in Big Bang. <laughs> Peter, we cannot thank you enough for your time. It's been a, a real joy. Oh, thank you guys. Thanks for for uh, giving me the call and giving me the opportunity. And you have an open invitation, you and your wife, to come out and let us take you wine tasting in Temecula. Absolutely. That'd be fantastic. Oh, that would be so much fun. I never omit an opportunity to go wine tasting. So. We'll see no, you on Facebook. Great. We'll see you on Facebook. No, I, I, may, I might add something to my cellar. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Take care, my friend. Thank you All so right. much, take Peter. Take care, everyone. Thank uh, you. Bye-bye. Well, I hope he takes us up on our offer of coming up for wine tasting. Wouldn't that be oh, fun? Oh, that would be so much fun. <laughs> oh, we got to stay in touch with him. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, invite him every once in a while on Facebook. Do it. And say, hey, the weather's great, you know, for mm-hmm. a big time. Absolutely. Maybe come out for my birthday. Wouldn't that be? It's coming <laughs> right up. I won't, won't wish that. But, uh, 
that'd be nice for him to come out and go wine tasting. We would have so much fun. We would. We I wonder would. if he could be incognito, if he'd be swamped <laughs> with people wanting his autograph. Well, he's got I mean, that face that's so familiar, but I don't know if people are going to go, oh, that's Peter, or they're going to yeah, go, I recognize well, him, but I can't place him. That's probably what I would have done before, because right. I knew the name, but didn't quite associate, but I sure do now. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, Maybe he wears sunglasses or something in a hat. <laughs> I don't I, know. I, I think he's had practice of going out in public. Yeah, I'm sure he has. So, anyway, should we get on with uh, the movie guy? Paul Preston. Hello, Chords, Vines, and Dines. Paul Preston chiming here on the show once again from themoviegues.net. Talking about streaming films this time out. I have a love-hate relationship with streaming, of course. Uh, it was one of the reasons that SAG and other unions were on strike because they developed a whole pay system that was just off from the beginning and they never negotiated with people. But they do greenlight movies and distribute films other studios might not. However, where's the hype? Sometimes, you know, you hear about this great movie that's on streaming and you want to go see it, what is it? I never heard of it. Oh, it came out two months ago. Two months? So anyway, I wish they'd uh, spend a little more on getting the hype out about some of these great movies that you could see. Uh, one, however, that you probably have heard of that I want to talk about today is The Greatest Night in Pop. This is a documentary about the making of USA for Africa's We Are the World back in January 1985. You may remember it was famously written by Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, and was produced by the great Quincy Jones, who a lot of people in Hollywood, I'm sure, would come together for at a drop of a heartbeat, even today, to do whatever project he feels like putting together. Of course, even with that, he had to put a giant sign above the door that said, check your ego at the door. So the biggest stars in the world showed up and got it done. The things you would expect, Bob Dylan was weird, Huey Lewis was a regular dude, uh, these are these come true in the <laughs> in what you're watching in this documentary, all sort of spearheaded by Lionel Richie, who comes off the best. He's one of many new interviews and participants they got to talk about the project from back in the day. But Lionel's stories and his honesty are very entertaining. And what a night he had! He was hosting the American Music Awards, and then he ran to a studio on La Brea and recorded this. Now they recorded. He also won a ton of awards at the AMA, so big night for Lionel, and he explains it, lays it all out for us as sort of the main guy behind this entire documentary. There's a sense of tension to this. I mean, you stress out seeing if they can actually pull this off, because it didn't start until like 10 p.m. after the AMAs, and they went to like 8 in the morning, and they keep cutting to the clock and see how later it is. Now it's 4 a.m., and have we begun to even sing any solo numbers, or have we just taken all our time thus far on the group chorus singing of We Are the World? So, uh, yeah, that was an unsuspected, entertaining part of this doc, just how kind of tense it is, and the will there, won't they? And you know they will the whole time. So, kudos to the filmmakers for having that tension be real, even though you know the outcome of the story. There's a sense of nostalgia here for folks like myself, seeing legends like. Bruce Springsteen back in the day, and they got him for an interview, which I thought was a pretty good get. A lot of these people are just in their prime, you know, from Billy Joel to Tina Turner to Daryl Hall, Steve Perry killing it, so it's fun to watch all these people. So it's the original, it's the classic, even though, of course, they were catching up to England at the time, which had already recorded Do They Know It's Christmas for charitable purposes, but now uh, they're on the map. <laughs> they re-recorded We Are the World to raise money for an earthquake in Haiti, but like, 
you won't see a documentary about that. Because like all attempts, or most at least, in pop culture to remake something, whether it's a movie, TV show, or a song, you can't touch the original. So The Greatest Night in Pop is worth checking out. But a great cinematic film that I saw in the theaters that is now on streaming as well. This is a streaming update, but it wasn't made for streaming. But this is a film called All of Us Strangers, and can't wait to see it again. Now everyone can see it on Hulu. It's a stunning, haunting, moody drama. It's about a young man who seems to thrive on isolation as he lives in an apartment complex that's nearly otherwise devoid of tenants, and he visits his parents regularly. That's the story. Doesn't sound interesting, of course, or exciting, but for the fact that his parents died 30 years ago. There's also a new neighbor who he at first pushes away and eventually lets in, sparking a new relationship in his otherwise solitary life. This is one of the best aspects of the movie, its ability to be supernatural but also be very grounded. And the performances certainly help in one of the year's biggest snubs, bigger than Barbie, Andrew Scott in the lead role. The guy is fantastic. He was not nominated. In fact, the film was shut out at the Oscars. Unfair. The BAFTAs knew better and gave it some nominations, but this should be at the top of everyone's must-see list. Besides Andrew Scott, Paul Mescal, excellent. Claire Foy and Jamie Bell in supporting roles as well. This is just one of those films where the director is working so meticulously, you're not even aware of how he's working on you until the final scene, and even more so the final shot, which now has a permanent place in the walls of my memory. Fantastic film. The director fills this movie with surprises and is constantly exploring the concept of love, whether it's parental, romantic, or in the case of the lead character, self-love. The film checks all the boxes for humanity, excellence in filmmaking, and it builds and, and spins an unpredictable web. It's outstanding. So check all of us strangers out on Hulu. That and The Greatest Night in Pop on Netflix, that's quite a double feature. Certainly variety in the mix. But uh, hey, listen, there's variety in chords, vines, and dines, so I'm just trying to fit in with the show and hope to do it again next month. Thanks, guys. Well, once again, we managed to have fun. Yes. And we always have got, fun. Got some good guests upcoming and uh, always uh, try to keep you entertained and informed. I'm excited about one of our, our guests coming up, the AI. Yes, her name is Angel, and she has a, a program called Vino Voss, V-O-S-S. -S. It's uh, an AI-based uh, wine tool, and the AI figures out what kind of wines you like, so... She'll be coming up in the near future. AI is becoming so popular. Everything is being done on AI. It's, and it's going fast. It's it really coming is. up fast. So anyway, until next time. Until next time, I love you. I love you too, yeah. Mr. Plant. <laughs> Bye, Ms. Ellis. Bye. Hey, folks, this is Robert Rankin-Walker here with Quartz, Vines, and Dines. So excited to be talking to you guys.